Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. something strange, a cryptid like Bigfoot, a ghost, a UFO. If you have an encounter with something paranormal and you want to share your story, you can email us, strangefamiliarspodcast at gmail.com. So on tonight's episode, we're going to do something a little different, more of one of our historical episodes. It's about neither a hermit nor a circus person. But some might say a cryptid because it does involve the cult of the clitoris. <laughs> Ooh. It also involves uh, murder, literature, trials, obscenity, depraved families that could be of special interest to you, dancing, perversity, um, homosexuality in an age when people didn't recognize that people were homosexual. It's, and the whole history of the human race, basically. In one person. All in one episode. Yeah, pretty much. I'm excited to get into it. It's also a person from history who I was semi-obsessed with for a while. For those of you who are familiar with Stone Breath, way back in the 1990s, we did an album called Lanterna Lucis Veriditatis. Was that the 90s or the early aughts, maybe? I believe it was in the late 90s. I believe that oh. was the last album we did in the 90s. I could be wrong. I'd have wow. to check to be sure. Now, now we're starting to talk like old people who like spend four times the amount that they should trying to decide whether it was Tuesday or Wednesday. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> in any case, in any case, this person graced the cover of a Stonebreast CD, and her name was Maud Allen. The reason why was 
I was very interested in the time of the legend of John the Baptist, of beheadings in general, and somehow I found photos of this person dancing with a severed head in the guise of Salome. And then I became very interested in her. I actually bought a book that was really hard to find. You have that book here, right? I do, yeah. Really hard to find information on her. It was called Maud Allen and Her Art. And I think it was out of print even when I got it then. I think I got in one of the remaining copies. I think I bought it from a dance school or something somewhere. Oh, that makes sense, yeah. Yeah. It's like a private press Canadian book at a time before private press books were uh, as easy to make. Yeah. It would have been, this would have been a uh, passion project for this person who was the nephew of one of Maud's last lovers. Oh, was he? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, That's wow. why he has all this information, including her diary. Oh, amazing. Amazing. Since that time, there have been two other books written about Maud Allen. At least, Which yeah. I don't have. Yeah. The one that we're going to lean heavily on is called Oscar Wilde's Last Stand by Philip Hoare, H-O-A-R-E. This was written around 2000, and I, I read it at that time, and it was kind of one of the jumping off points for collecting that particular genre of photo postcards, which is like Edwardian theater actresses and there's so many that have a really completely sorted past and even to the point at one point I had so many stories collected that I had pitched a book about like the bad girls of the postcard era including like um, Evelyn Nesbitt and Cleo de Marode who were that's another show Cleo de Marode yeah and I think that maybe maybe that's a good idea for a patron episode related to this Mm -hmm. there's some amazing stories about these girls who were courtesans concubines spies, Matahari, you know, like, but all kind of draped in this exotic orientalist, as they would have referred to it at the time, very otherworldly kind of women from yeah. another place in time, which probably didn't exist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's almost this fantastic idea. By fantastic, I mean a, a fantasy, you know. Yeah, of, and, I mean, uh, I, and I did read one, one woman who had written a book which related to Maud Allen and called Orientalism a reductive concept in that it places pretty much everywhere in the Middle East into one yeah. sort of idea of what the Middle East is. But in another way, it's making almost like a, in contemporary terms, maybe like like a fan fiction version of what the Middle East is. And I don't think it at the time came from a place, it came from a place of just sheer ignorance mixed with, you know, so, some yeah. racism right? and like a flair for sort of a, a dramatic exotic world that may or may not actually exist. Yeah, so Orientalism is considered problematic these days for obvious reasons, Mm -hmm. but problematic as it was. Beautiful paintings. (laughs) The the artwork is stunning, Mm -hmm. and and it's it's really beautiful. And some of the artwork beyond the paintings, some of the artwork, and I'm speaking of like Maud Allen, and are we going to talk about Salomania? A, a little bit. We could talk a little bit about Salomania. Salomania that kind of developed because of Maud Allen and because of Oscar Wilde and, and this stuff. There's a lot of beautiful art that came out of it. So It's history, so it's yeah, always nuanced and yeah, problematic. There's, there's always issues with it and so forth. But, hey, let's get into the story of Miss Maud Allen. off as Maud Allen. She was born Beulah Maud Durant in Toronto in 1873 with one brother and some, I would say, dubious parentage. It was assumed because she had so much help from another friend of the family that he might have actually been the father of both she and her brother. Interesting. This sort of sets the scene for this family that, as you see, becomes more and more problematic. It's referred to later as a depraved family. I think a lot of families fall into that. <laughs> I don't know what counts as a depraved family versus, but everyone in the family seems to have some issues. <laughs> well, we find doing genealogy, say, mm-hmm. without getting specific, that sometimes 
as uh, genetic genealogy comes up, people's parents aren't who they necessarily thought they were. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So um, I'll just say that while it appeared on the surface as if she had a very stable home life, things are not often exactly what they seem. Well, that's that's often the case. (laughs) So after she was born in Toronto in 1877, when she was just a little girl, they moved to the Mission District in San Francisco. And she started private schooling, and so did her brother. And by the time she's 19, she's become a piano teacher. So she's already well-versed in artistic pursuits. She was a noted piano player, right? Like They, yeah. they noted that she was uh, had particular talent. Mm-hmm. And so, as uh, youthful people sometimes do, she, with uh, people of means, uh, not me in particular, I didn't leave for Berlin when I was a young person. <laughs> she leaves for Berlin, and um, her brother gives her a diary and says... He'll join her the following year after his graduation from medical school. This is in 1895. Now, as when whenever you talk about these kind of things, you can tell, like, oh, this isn't going to happen, right? Like, <laughs> something's going to go wrong. But I don't think, like, that you could imagine how wrong this goes. Because her brother Theodore, sometimes called Theo, uh, is in medical school. He's a member of the National Guard, and they're both members of the Emanuel Baptist Church. But at some point in his early 20s, he suffers from what they refer to as brain fever, which left him unstable and strange, and he started having omens and predictions. So, you know, everyone wants to be a lay medical professional, but my assumption would be because of his age and the stress that, you know, maybe he was suffering from schizophrenia. It seems a likely idea that this young, promising man suddenly starts having strange predictions and omens that you know there's also the idea that perhaps you know it's strange familiar so maybe something took over his body i don't know (laughs) brain fever that was the the term they used yeah i guess it's kind of almost like being troubled by ghosts right (laughs) as you might imagine in some people this can be managed even then Uh, for theo this is just the start of a very bad outcome Mm. On the 13th of April, 1895, and I'm going to read from the book Wild's Last Stand, we'll find out what happened. Okay. On Saturday, the 13th of April, 1895, the body of 23-year-old Minnie Williams was found in a cupboard of Emanuel Baptist Church, the Durant's local church. She was naked and had apparently been hacked to death. The police arrived and, on searching the church, found the body of 21-year-old Blanche Lamont in the belfry. This, too, was naked and had been laid out as if for, by medical examination. Circumstantial evidence linking Theo, who knew both girls, to the crime led to his arrest the following day. According to the local paper, when Theo was shown newspaper reports of Minnie Williams' murder, the muscles around his mouth twitched and his face turned pale. Then he looked at detectives Anthony and Palmer and said, I am sorry only for my mother. How can she stand it? Isabella Durant would not be the only family member irrevocably changed by the fate of this good son. For Maud, who was yet closer to her brother, the affair radically altered her psyche. The idea of a mad family would be reflected in future accusations of genetic perversity that Maud would face, and the notion is underlined by the fact that during Theo's trial, the local press was full of hints that she and Isabella were perverse. Maud and Isabella were both perverse. Mm-hmm. Scandalous. It is scandalous. <laughs> I mean, really, the only way that a depraved person could exist is if they came from a depraved family because these things just don't happen to good families right and, yeah, according so it, to the press the yeah, yeah so it has to be as we'll go on we'll see that there's an element of truth to that the family isn't exceptionally stable and there are accusations that are later borne out which um are very disturbing mm. not as disturbing as that part as <laughs> <laughs> the murder of two as, uh, yes. Uh, he was accused of psychomaniosexualis, which is similar to what uh, Jack the Ripper was oh. accused of having. And this doesn't happen that different time-wise. Yeah, it's, this is... Yeah, this is like maybe, I think, I have to check, but I, is it 1880s, like Jack the Ripper? It sounds about right. So this a, is like a decade ten, later. Yeah, a decade basically. later. So this is fresh in people's memory, as, especially because of his particular M.O., kind of mirrored that yeah the the sort of laying out the body in a medical way mm-hmm. now, i have no interest in seeing these i'm just curious if they exist do you know if crime scene pictures exist there are yeah. pictures of the girls that are just um illustrative renderings they did exist because they showed members of the juries somewhere they probably exist um 
Yeah, I, I didn't really go looking for them. That's not really yeah, my I'm, thing. But I'm, I'm not interested in seeing them. I just wondered if they did exist because I know some of the Jack the Ripper victims. Uh, yeah, I've exist. seen those photos. Yeah. yeah, as this would any family rips everyone in the family apart. I can't imagine how even the most stable person could withstand that kind of trauma and how it wouldn't be irrevocably life changing. Sure. And so it was for Maud. They said at that time she gave up playing piano. Eventually this leads to her becoming a dancer, but it does leave her changed. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about what happens to Theo. So this gets into some of the crime stuff and just a little little warning for people. It gets a little detailed. And so if you're sensitive to such things, uh, you might want to skip this part. This comes from the Evening Mail, Stockton, California, 15th of April, 1895. On Saturday, the mail contained an account of the shocking murder in San Francisco of Minnie Williams of Alameda, a pretty girl of about 16. She was found in a little room adjoining the library of the Emanuel Baptist Church on Bartlett and 22nd Streets. When discovered, the girl was lying on her back, her clothing disarranged and her face covered with blood. An examination revealed that she had been stabbed to death with a common table knife, having first been deprived of that which she valued more than life by her murderer. I think we're to assume virginity? Probably. Miss Williams was known to be a friend of Miss Blanche Lamont, who had mysteriously disappeared about two weeks ago. Miss Williams had several times expressed the firm conviction that her best friend had been foully dealt with, that it was believed by many that she had eloped. Both Miss Williams and Miss Lamont were on very friendly terms with W.H.T. Durant, assistant superintendent of the Sunday School of the Emanuel Baptist Church, of which the girls were members, and who is a medical student. It is stated that Miss Williams and Durant had been keeping company for some time, and there was some talk of a match, but Durant appeared latterly to have transferred his affections to Miss Lamont. When Miss Williams' body was found last Saturday, her expressions regarding Miss Lamont's fate recurred to her friends, who immediately came to the conclusion that Miss Williams' openly expressed suspicions were justified, and that the murderer, fearing that Miss Williams might make statements that would result in his being dragged before the bar of justice, decoyed her into the church and dispatched her. All the circumstances pointed to Durant as the perpetrator of the horrible deed. He had also disappeared and could not be located. On Saturday morning, shortly before Miss Williams' mutilated body was found, Miss Lamont's aunt, Mrs. Charles G. Noble, received a package through the post which, upon being opened, was found to contain three rings belonging to her niece. The address was not in her niece's handwriting, and Mrs. Noble came to the sorrowful conclusion that Miss Lamont had been foully dealt with. How well-founded her fears were is shown by the following account of the finding of the missing girl's body published in the extra issue of San Francisco Chronicle yesterday. The dead body of Blanche Lamont was found at 10 o'clock this morning in the belfry of Emanuel Baptist Church on Bartlett Street near 22nd. Stripped of every stitch of clothing, the marks of a strangler's rope around her neck, she was stiff, stark, and cold when Detective Gibson and Officer Reel broke in the door of the musty, dimly lit room. The face of the strangled girl was bloated and purpled from the pressure of the rope, twisted from her own clothing until not one vestige of her beauty remained. On the dusty floor, thrown in disorder, were the clothes of the victim— torn almost into shreds as if the murderer had thrown them in a frenzy of his own fiendish attack. So then they go and arrest Theo. Detective Anthony went there this morning on the first train with instructions to spare no expense to accomplish the apprehension of Durant. While the police will not at this time state positively he is guilty of the terrible crime attributed to him, they are evidently proceeding on the information which gravely implicates him. As stated in the previous extra by the Chronicle, the body of Miss Lamont was found bereft of clothing. Her throat bore the bruised marks made by the fingers of her murderer as he strangled her. Her limbs were bloodstained. Undoubtedly, the girl was outraged before her life was so cruelly taken. The waist of the dress had been torn from the skirt, and both waist and skirt rolled up into a small bundle and forced into dark and deep crevices. The other garments were torn and treated in a similar manner. Disturbing. Very disturbing. They, they search his room, and they find what they consider damning evidence a purse belonging to Miss Williams was found in one of the pockets of his coat and was positively identified by the girl's father as being a Christmas gift from him. Um, an album was found in Durant's room containing a photograph of the murdered girl. 
Her hat and overcoat, which Durant wore on the night of the murder, were found in the room and also taken to police headquarters. They will be thoroughly examined for any evidence of the bloody crime, it says. He must have led in some respects, and they get into this a little bit because the, the Jekyll and Hyde kind of trope is becoming more popular this time, that he had a sort of double life. Hmm. And that in, in one respect, he was this very um, promising medical student. Sunday school teacher. Sunday school teacher, you know. But he had a real dark side. Are we to believe from this article, I, I assume that it was he who sent the rings to her I w- Yeah, I can't imagine why not. Which is a creepy kind of Jack the Ripper thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you wonder how much, um, I mean, we have the the all of history to to see all at once. I wonder how much, you know, 10 years from the event, people knew about Jack the Ripper. Yeah, who knows? That might be something, you know, keeping some things, like he kept her purse. Mm-hmm. And then mailing some things either to the family or to police in a way to let them know you did it or or, or whatever the case is. It, it may be just something that uh, people are compelled to do. Mm-hmm. In other words, maybe he didn't know Jack the Ripper did that. Maybe he just, for whatever insane reason, was mm-hmm. compelled to do that. And um, his family did plead with him on that account to, to plead insanity. He did not. So as you might imagine, with a a wealth of evidence and people hot to find a solution for the death of two young, innocent girls, uh, he was found guilty. This is an article from the Junction City Republican in Junction City, Kansas, 1897. I'm actually surprised it took that long to get him to trial. Because sometimes back then they would rush these guys to trial. Well, someone steps in, which is their possible uh, real biological father who had a lot of connections. They were to help save him, and he had a a wealth of appeals Mm. because he was sentenced to death. So this is an article called Durant Must Hang. Supreme Court overrules appeal for the convicted San Francisco murderer. Washington, November 9th. The United States Supreme Court today affirmed the decision of the Circuit Court for California refusing a writ of habeas corpus to William Henry Theodore Durant under sentence of death for the murder of Blanche Lamont in San Francisco in April 1895. The case has attracted attention throughout the whole of the United States, and today's decision permits the law to take its course with the condemned man. Chief Justice Fuller announced the court's decision, but made no remarks in doing so, save to cite a few authorities on which the court based its decision. So it went all the way to the Supreme Court? And I don't know if it went to the Supreme Court of the United States or... The Supreme Court of California. Well, it says, well, it Washington. says Washington. Yeah, yeah. so um, I Presumably guess... it did, yeah. Yeah, so... Wow. He is executed, and his mother, who has... What mother wouldn't be interested in securing at least life for their son? So she's she's constantly writing and appealing on behalf, and they said, I don't know if we have time, but I'll try to put up the picture of him because you can see you can search a lot of prison records so you can see the intake photos mm-hmm. he was housed in san quentin and that's ultimately where he was executed was he hanged he was hanged his mother insisted on attending along with 200 other people Oof. and she said instead of being the greatest criminal of the century he's the greatest martyr so she believed in his innocence until the last or at least expressed it in that way was theo younger or older than Maud? I believe he was like just a few years younger, but the family was very close. There are allegations that perhaps Theo and his mother had a relationship, an unsavory relationship, mm-hmm. which might explain a lot of what happened Yeah. afterward. There's also some allegations that Maud might have had a similar relationship with her brother. It's unclear how founded that is. It explains a lot, mm-hmm. but this tends to haunt her as she continues with her career. It reminded me a lot of, I don't know if if everyone's familiar with the movie Heavenly Creatures, um, which is... Uh, it's, Pe- it's Peter Jackson. It's an early movie by Peter Jackson, and I think one of the first movies, if not the first, that Kate Winslet is in. Yeah, it's probably my favorite movie of all time, and, and not because of the murder aspect of it, but which is not a spoiler because it happens in the first minute of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> but it details the relationship of two young girls in New Zealand in the 1950s, one of which becomes a very famous writer. A crime writer. A very famous crime writer who writes about murder and mystery for the rest of her life, who's still alive. And this reminds me of this too, that just because you change your name 
Like, can you ever escape your past? Mm -hmm. And Maud finds out two days later that her brother was killed. And that's when her life just kind of takes another course, which undoubtedly it will. I mean, that's... You can't help but be changed mm -hmm. by that forever. And you said it. it's around this time that she gives up piano. Yes. And in, um, in 1900, her mother arrives in Berlin for 18 months, carrying Theo's ashes in an urn and taking them around with her everywhere she goes. Wow. And she abandons the piano for what she calls her vocation slash art form, which is this sort of like the, the beginnings of her, her, her dancing art. Now, I remember reading somewhere that people were kind of shocked at this because she was such a promising pianist. They were very like, oh, what a shame. She's giving up the piano. Like, so they, it was really a sacrifice in a way for her to, to do that. It was really a, as her life changed she changed her life. Mm -hmm. you, you know, it's it's really a big thing. You know, it's no small thing that she yeah. that she gave up piano. And I'm unsure at exactly what date she takes on um, the name Maud Allen as opposed to Maud Durant. Mm -hmm. But she's trying to escape that depraved family, as we all are. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I have a wonderful family. <laughs> By 1906, she's d debuted The Vision of Salome. And becomes a uh, sensation in London. So I don't know if we want to diverge here a little bit and just talk about the role of Salome in the Bible and the role of Salome in uh, one of the key figures in this story, which is Oscar Wilde. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Let's go to the, the biblical Salome first. This would be a great um, time to have Brother Richard on the show. <laughs> so if we, if we mess up, Brother Richard, please tell us. <laughs> well, this comes from the Gospel of St. Mark. Uh, this is chapter 6, verse 17 through 29. Now, this is what the Bible says about Salome. If you read other sources, I think uh, Josephus and other historians of the time have different things to say about her necessarily so she's a bit of a mystery but if we're going with the biblical story which would have inspired Maud Allen and the whole Salamania that followed this is uh, again what St. Mark said for Herod himself had sent and apprehended John we're talking about John the Baptist and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias the wife of Philip his brother because he had married her for John said to Herod it is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife now Herodias laid snares for him, and was desirous to put him to death, and could not. For Herod feared John, knowing him to be a just and holy man, and kept him. And when he heard him, did many things, and he heard him willingly. And when a convenient day was come, Herod made a supper for his birthday, for the princes and tribunes and chief men of Galilee. And when the daughter of the same Herodias had come in, and had danced, and pleased Herod, and them that were at the table with him, the king said to the damsel, Ask of me what thou wilt, and I will give it thee. So the daughter of Herodias is Salome. She's never mentioned by name in the Bible. How do we know her name, then? I think other historians at the time oh, okay. and so forth. Ask of me what thou wilt, and I will give it thee. And he swore to her, Whatsoever thou shalt ask, I will give thee, though it be the half of my kingdom. Who, when she had gone out, said to her mother, What shall I ask? But her mother said, The head of John the Baptist. And when she was come in, immediately with haste to the king, she asked, saying, I will that forthwith thou give me in a dish the head of John the Baptist. And the king was struck sad, yet because of his oath, and because of them that were with him at the table, he would not displease her. But sending an executioner, he commanded that his head should be brought in a dish. And he beheaded him in the prison, and brought his head in a dish, 
and gave to the damsel, and the damsel gave it her mother, which his disciples hearing came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So that's the idea that, that Salome danced and it pleased Herod so much or enticed him so much or whatever was going on. Found there. her so beguiling that it was certainly worthy that, of whatever. That he said, I will give you up to half my kingdom, anything you want. So he was so entranced by the dance of Salome. And instead of asking for anything gold or, or land well, or really, she else. didn't get to choose. She asked her mom, right? <laughs> right. Well, yeah, she asked her mother, and her mother just said the head of John the Baptist. And why, I mean, I don't know the background of why her mother was... Because he had said to King Herod that it was not lawful for him to have his brother's wife, and she did not. She didn't take kindly to that. Oh, so it was like a personal slight. Yeah. And so she wanted a, a form of revenge. Yeah, she, she, he was a holy man and well-respected, and she, she wanted him maybe not to be saying that about, uh, about her, I suppose. So Oscar Wilde writes a play based on the Salome story? Mm-hmm. He even has specific examples, and um, I think the British version of this Oscar Wilde's Last Stand is probably... Um, designed in a different way because it says in the first edition of Oscar Wilde's Salome, not only, you know, he was like an all-encompassing artist. So he wanted the design of the book to look exactly how he wanted. Like he wanted any stage production to look exactly how he wanted. Mm. He, he, he wanted sort of uh, complete control over this. And so I think in the British version of this book, um, it had purple boards and silver blocking on the binding, which is the same as, as the first edition of Oscar Wilde's Salome. Uh, unfortunately, the the paperback American version is just very <laughs> boring in comparison. So I, maybe at this point we can detour a little bit and talk about Oscar Wilde and his very famous trial because it echoes something that's going to happen to Maud. Sure. Something that she should probably have learned from but does not. <laughs> <laughs> Oscar Wilde is a mildly interesting historical figure. <laughs> put it lightly. That's probably to him that would be like the biggest insult because he'd either want you to hate him or love him. Right. Yeah. But um, like most people, I learned um, about Oscar Wilde in a combination of having to read the picture of Dorian Gray at the same time as listening to the Smiths. So ah. most of my early Oscar Wilde knowledge just comes from those two sources. <laughs> <laughs> so in 1895, so this is um, contemporary with some of the notable events that are happening in Maud Allen's life. Yeah. Me meanwhile, in England, Oscar Wilde has accused the Marquess of... I guess that's how, how you would say the Marquess of Queensbury of libel and against the judgment of his friends, which are like, whoa. So she had passed a note to Wilde at a club that basically accused him of being a sodomite, which he found to be libelous. And he brings a suit against her. All of his friends are saying, don't do it. Don't mm -hmm. get yourself in the public eye. Don't bring this upon yourself because, you know, the only way for her to get out of this is to prove that you are a sodomite. And they all knew that he was. So mm -hmm. <laughs> evidence is brought forth. He drops the charges, but is ultimately arrested for gross indecency and jailed from 1895 to 1897, which is almost concurrent with the time period from the time that Theo was put in jail to the time that he's executed. Right. So uh, there are, I'm sure, a ton of sources for the trial of Oscar Wilde that get into it. Yeah, that's a whole nother issue, yeah. but it is related in that she becomes, she does meet Wilde at one point, which she denies later on. Oh, really? Yes. And she debuts the vision of Salome and she tours. No, the vision of Salome is her dance program. Mm -hmm. It's, um, she's wearing a costume of her own design, which in contemporary terms is really not, it looks kind of like. To me, it looks like a nice quality, bad Amazon belly dance costume. <laughs> <laughs> it's the one where you pay like a little bit more to have the fabric that lasts more than the night that you're wearing it, but mm -hmm. not a lot more. It's the one that doesn't come in a plastic bag. Yeah, exactly. With, yeah, yeah. With, with, it's folded. Yeah. <laughs> she tours New York and South Africa, and there's varying amounts of um, people being ready for her performance, you know, because it's scandalous. Right. Sometimes she is framed as this turn-of-the-century woman that's pushing the boundaries, mm -hmm. th that they're looking for freedom in sometimes extreme ways, or, or what are 
viewed at the time as extreme ways. Today they'd be, you know, taken as a matter of course, mm-hmm. you know. It's not that big a deal. But at the time, uh, she's kind of lumped in with some of these other, you know, women that, that are really searching for freedom and mm-hmm. freedom of expression and... Sort of proto-suffragettes. Yeah. And yeah. there's this idea that, you know, if women get a, a modicum of freedom or sexual expression, that it's all going to go to hell. They're going to get the vote, and the next thing you know, women in power. <laughs> so th- this is an article... From 1907, this is about America not being ready for Maud Allen. Sensational dancer fears to come here. Maud Allen, who says she's an isn't an American, thinks this country is not yet ripe for her barefoot gyrations. <laughs> Performance in Paris is the event of the season. Creation has declared a new thing in art. In a Salome, she has worked out an original idea in evolution. When Maud Allen, the marvelous dancer, said that today America is not yet ripe, she meant that American audiences and spectators ought to cast aside prudery and consider art. Well, that's going to be a tough one for America. (laughs) (laughs) She's given a new sensation to jaded Paris, but she fears that in New York there are not enough people to appreciate the beauty of her work. The general run might object to seeing a woman running about the stage in bare feet. Over here, Maud Allen's appearance has been regarded as one of the great events of the theatrical season. Her Salome has thrown all other Salomes into the shade. Wow, they're literally throwing shade. (laughs) She has created a new thing in art just as surely as Louis Fuller did in her day with her electrical color effects in her dances. And I think if you go online, you can actually see on YouTube those really high speed early performances that Louis Fuller did this dance where she had long kind of like sticks with ribbon on it and then she would twirl them around. And so you can see her Mm. doing that dance online. Go to the YouTube. (laughs) (laughs) Mara Allen's idea is that by means of the movements of her form and the expression of her face that she can convey across the footlights the emotions of dramatic incidents. She calls herself an American. She was born in Toronto, so she told a correspondent who interviewed her today, but was reared in San Francisco and so considers herself an American. She studied music for several years in Berlin and earned a first-class diploma. Then, although she never had been regularly taught dancing, she determined to seek out a new path in art. She studied Greek vases and Assyrian tablets and old books or whatever could give her a true notion of the real spirit of the dances of antiquity. She would study one picture for hours at a time until she could feel that the movements of the pictured dancers of Greek or Assyria or Egypt was actually flowing through her own body. And then she would go home and practice incessantly until she had woven all these artistic sensations into a harmonious whole. Here's the most scandalous thing. She does not wear tights. She appears on the stage without tights. Her body is covered by a light oriental garment studded with precious stones. Her figure, symmetrical as Venus, gives no suggestion of athletic overdevelopment, but rather of the perfect proportions which fit the Greek idea. Her bare feet are not too small, but are beautifully modeled. As she enters into the spirit of the dance, she becomes absorbed in her work, and she makes no appeal to the baser ideas of most persons who go to see a new dancer. On October 29th, she said, I sail with Mademoiselle Framzad for America. I long to see God's country again. And this is from... The Inter-Ocean, Chicago, Illinois, 2nd of June, 1907. So she's been dancing as Salome for some time. She has, and, like, and they talk about other Salome's and so this is during this time of like sort of an increased interest in what would be considered orientalist or just middle eastern um, exotic dancing now was she the sole cause of Salomania or I don't think so and I it was just something that was in the air that she was part of yes I think I think that is the case so there we collect old photos and old postcards and there there are many Salome's mm-hmm. people dressed as Salome, paintings of Salome, and so forth that come from the time. So it really was culturally something that was, you know, kind of in the air. And it broke down a lot of borders or a lot of um, social mores because previously you were not allowed to depict a biblical subject in that regard. Interesting. And so this was a, a new, a new avenue for breaking ground. Now she danced with a severed head. Yes. A very realistic-looking severed head. Yes. Uh, more realistic than some of the other Salome's, for sure. Yeah, there's some that look pretty bad. <laughs> and one of the, the stories, and I don't know if this is true or just, you know, that goes with the legend of Maud Allen, 
that I always loved was that someone who was a dance instructor or an artistic instructor or someone who knew the story of her brother and knew how close they were told her to imagine that she was dancing with the head of her brother when she was dancing with the head. Which, if there's any truth at all to that, is very, very powerful. So by 1908, this is an article um, talking about how she's won British royal approval of her prurient and ghastly dances. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a photo of her holding the head. Yeah, we'll try to include some of these in, if we can. So at this point, they've determined that she is related to Durant. Yeah, and this is a San Francisco newspaper, so they would be keenly aware of, of the connection Back in England, it's not. She can still get away with not not being known in that capacity. It is. It isn't 2020. So right, changing the name had some effect back then. Yeah. What subtle psychological link binds together Maud Allen, writhing and contorting herself over the facsimile of a dead saint's head to please the King of England, and Theodore Durant concealing the dead bodies of his women victims in the belfry of Emmanuel Church in San Francisco. Ooh. Yeah, I think it's a little rough. (laughs) I think it's ungrounded. There seems to be a certain gruesome appropriateness in the announcement that Maud Allen is a sister of the notorious murderer. A letter written from Europe by Maud Allen to a girlfriend in San Francisco revealed her identity as Maud Durant of earlier years, and the girlfriend promptly published the fact that Maud Allen, born in Toronto, Canada, and spending her girlhood in San Francisco, was educated at the Cogswell School and began to acquire the skill in dancing that has since made her famous. In 1900, some two years after Durant's execution, she obtained the means to go to Europe and complete her professional training. This article has a lot of really beautiful pictures of her in different poses. It talks about the people that she dances for, particularly the Prime Minister of England, who later on she is accused of having an affair with his wife. Hmm. Wait, she's having an affair with his wife? Yeah. Oh. That's what makes her so damn dangerous. (laughs) Uh, But this article goes on to talk about how her life has been one revel of horrors. One of her most horrible episodes occurred during her Budapest engagement. She was giving a special performance of Salome in one of the palaces of the nobility. And as she approached the delirious climax of the dance, where Salome kisses the severed head of St. John the Baptist, she realizes that she was holding the actual head of a dead man. Count Zichet a great Hungarian nobleman had substituted the head of a recently murdered man for the papier-mâché head usually used in the dance. It was the Count's idea of a practical joke. I don't know if that's a practical joke. I think that goes beyond practical joke, and my guess is it didn't really happen. Yeah, it's probably (laughs) a legend, but uh, horrifying if true. Mm -hmm. Then they go on to explain a little bit about her dance, which, since we don't have the benefit of actually knowing what this performance was like, this is a description by an eyewitness that'll be of value in enlightening American audiences. Okay. And all of our audience. (laughs) (laughs) The rising curtain discloses a stage set with obelisks, each adorned with a torch and a backing of moonlit gardens. In the center, at the back, stands the dancer, erect with feet together, arms extended, and head thrown back, showing a well-turned throat. Her hair is black, orientally arranged, and surmounted by a headdress of eastern fashion. Jeweled plates outline her breasts. Across the front of the torso swing two or three pendants of pearls. From a waistband supported of the hips hangs a skirt of black net. Just below the waist is some sort of undergarment of the kind usually worn by ballet dancers when they appear in tights. But this dancer does not wear tights. Neither above nor below does she wear them, except for the undergarment mentioned she is absolutely nude, body and limbs. Her body and limbs are muscular. Her bare feet seem to be somewhat large but graceful and remarkably free from deformities. The dance begins with some high significant postures and movements. What they signify is left to the imagination. When these movements have nearly exhausted the performer, the head of St. John the Baptist appears suddenly on a pedestal at the left of the dancer. 
She sees it and folds up like a recoiling serpent. Then she unwinds and creeps toward it with tense, low strides. She throbs, she turns away, she approaches again, and finally she pounces upon the head and carries it toward the footlights. Then she goes into a spasm, a physical rapture over it. She makes Olive Fremstead's famous dress rehearsal performance of Salome look like the reverie of a nun, says a well-known American critic. This, it will be remembered, was the performance that America refused to tolerate. Suddenly, Maud Allen springs to her full height and, swinging the head at arm's length, brings it above her face. Then she suddenly drops the white lips upon her own and for a moment seems to drink obscene kisses from them as from the brim of a cup. Then follows a writhing revulsion. She puts the head behind her, hides her face with the arm, and creeps back toward the pedestal. In another moment, she drops behind the pedestal and falls shuddering to her knees. Again, she rises, this time slowly. Her whole nude figure quivers. She writhes and worms her way across the stage. She wreathes fantastic figures with her arms, her legs, her gleaming body. She staggers, she reels, she fails. A shining mass in the pallid moonlight. The curtain descends. I'm getting a very vivid picture of what this was like. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for the anonymous American who braved that performance and all of the decadence in, inherent in it. It's a shame we don't have uh, any film of it. It'll be wonderful to see. So this kind of performance at this time puts women in the public eye. Mm-hmm. This is a very dangerous woman. Yes. Because yes. in not-so-subtle terms, she's basically having sex with a severed head. Yes. Um, in Edwardian times, in an Edwardian version of that. Right, right. And not only that, but she's the sister of a murderer. She's dangerous. Mm-hmm. So it would be wonderful if the rest of the story just went, she became fabulously uh, wealthy just from her art. She set up charities, charities and, and schools which for women. She did actually at some point. But, but not before getting to this next portion of the story, which, as the article says, um, her life is one revel of horrors. This is the next one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so having known Oscar Wilde, and probably been a little bit more than the average person familiar with how that trial went, you would think that she wouldn't fall into this particular situation. But in 1918, she's in a new production of Salome, and there's a man who... So she's been doing this for a while now. Yeah. Because she was born in 1873, don't make me do the math, but she's no longer like a young ingenue. Mm -hmm. There's a man that's in power with, and I'm sorry if I offend any of our British listeners, with what to me seems like the most British name you could possibly have, (laughs) and it is Pemberton Billing. Okay. (laughs) Now, I know there are versions of what is like the most American name, so every, every country has their... Yeah. Yeah. But Pemberton Billing is a member of Parliament. And he publishes some insinuations about Maud in an article called The Cult of the Clitoris, and she launches a libel suit. Scandalous. Yeah. What's even more scandalous is that he specifically uses that word as sort of a catch, because anybody who knows that word is depraved. Oh. It's only recently been revealed that it even exists. <laughs> <laughs> Though I have a suspicion some people knew previously. <laughs> This man was particularly rooted in a fear of homosexuality by another comrade named Harold Sherwood Spencer. And this is all tied into this large conspiracy, which involves um, anti-Semitic overtones and anti-feminists. It's basically the whole history of, of the world. And that as change is happening, there are people who are actively pushing the other way. Yeah. And so... He claimed an existence of an unseen hand trying to sabotage the war by propagating evils which all decent men had thought had perished in Sodom and Lesbia. Oh, so. Yeah, so basically when he outs her in the courtroom as also being the brother of a murderer, it kind of seals seals her fate. Mm. She fails to disprove herself and is seen as a lewd, unchaste, and immoral woman. Yeah, part of the trial, if you you can read all about it in the book, the Oscar Wilde's Last Stand. But basically, um, the fact that she knows a, a little bit about basic anatomy, or what we would consider to be basic anatomy now, <laughs> is used against her. Oh, wow. It was a trap, using the word clitoris. Wow. They actually talk, too, about, at one point they stop the courtroom because they use the word orgasm, and one of the... I forget which side stops and says, wait, can you clarify what that word means? And then nobody wants to say it, but there's sort of an insinuation. Like, they don't know what the word means. Wow. (laughs) 
So she's seen as a scandalous woman. She changes course again and tries to open schools for poor children. Well, did was there repercussions of uh, this trial? Like, did she go to jail or anything? She loses the suit. She didn't go to jail, but she does lose the suit. Oh, she brought the suit against him. Yeah, she loses the suit. So it mirrors in a lot of ways the Oscar Wilde trial. Mm -hmm. And they bring Oscar Wilde up during the trial, try to frame her as uh, being a lesbian, possibly having an affair with the prime minister's wife, being in league with the unseen hand in Germany. This is all happening around the time of the First World War. Mm. So it's very important to suppress female expression, suppress progress. These are people who are beating the war drum. So she goes on to little acclaim to keep trying to do what she had done before, but she's getting older Mm -hmm. and now she has this black mark upon her record. Everyone knows that she's the sister of a murderer, but she does open schools for poor children and briefly works as a riveter during the war in the 40s at the same factory as Ruth St. Dennis, who is another really famous early dancer. Oh, wow. So they both end up at the same factory. Yeah. Uh, later on, she, I think she dies in a nursing home after in the 50s. That's a little bit less exciting. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those like broken unknown things, right? Yeah, she yeah, yeah. She just sort of dies in obscurity. But she she does continue to try to help poor children and underprivileged children. Well, that's and amazing. There's so many of these um, really, I think, powerful, particularly British women with some power and money who are so philanthropic. Mm-hmm. Beatrix Potter being one of them. I've, I've seen that as, as a continued um, theme with a lot of British women. Well, yeah, starting from even, not British, but Jenny Lind gave a, a huge amount of money that she got from her working with her time with P.T. Barnum, and she gave a huge amount of money to charity. So these a lot of these pioneering feminists were also very philanthropic. In one of the books, they talk about the particular songs that they that she used in her performances were actually cutting in some songs from different visions of Salome. Yeah, there were uh, more than one vision of Salome. The, the Salomania was so big that I think a lot of people did compositions. She particularly did do um, a specific dance to the Spring Song by Mendelssohn, mm-hmm. um, but she also danced to the Funeral March from Chopin, which I thought would might be a little heavy in today's. <laughs> <laughs> and um, there's a vision of Salome song by Marcel Remy who actually was the person she worked with. It's hard. I, I haven't been able to locate that particular version because it's... Yeah, that's that particular song I haven't, but we have other visions of Salome, which we'll be playing uh, throughout the episode. Which are... Um, or have played. By the time you hear this. <laughs> so that's the life of Miss Maud Allen, one of the early Edwardian dancers. Now, this Salomania, the interesting thing is we don't know the names of too many of these other Salome dancers. Again, we have postcards of them and they mentioned the one that that you know was scandalous and apparently Maud is even more scandalous than her yeah they kind of they keep mentioning like these famous dancers like louis fuller and um uh, isadora duncan i don't know if any if you're familiar with she's the one who would like do the dance of the seven bales and ultimately was killed when her uh long scarf was caught in the wheel of the car mm-hmm I only know that because my mom always thought that, that I was going to get my scarf caught in the wheel. It was like a cautionary tale. That's how I learned about Isadora Duncan. <laughs> Not as this amazing dancer, but as a cautionary tale for long scarf wearing. <laughs> Though Maud Allen died in obscurity, again, she's another person that you know we're talking about today and that several books have been written about. Um, yeah, many books. Yeah. So she lives on. Mm-hmm. So, Along with many other scandalous women of the age. Oh, absolutely. I'd like to do a uh, patron episode about some of the other ones. We will do just that. Uncertain times, and people have really, really stepped up and are being very kind. Maynard W. gave a PayPal donation. He also bought some original art. 
oh, which that's is cool. a huge help. I know that's your favorite because then it gives you the impetus to do more. And... Yeah, I mean, I, you're always doing it anyway. But um... I, I often say, and I think I've said on the podcast before that one of the ways I may die is under a, a collapse of an avalanche of original art. I do a lot of art. I don't know why that is. I don't know. I don't think I'm particularly fast. It takes me a long time to do stuff. But used uh, to be faster. Yeah, it's the story of age. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> but I have a lot of original art, and people have often said you should charge more for your art. But I'd I'd rather sell it than hold on to it and charge more for it. Uh, yeah, I always so. think of bread and puppet and the and the value of cheap accessible art. Yeah, no, they I don't sell it that cheap. <laughs> <laughs> Tina S, I did a piece of art on Slate. I've been collecting slate tiles, roof tiles, from the collapsed, ruined flint mill on Toad Road. When I go by there, I always pick up a slate tile. That was a, they were they were roofing shingles, slate shingles, probably made in Delta, but not sure. In any case, my intention with those was to do paintings on them, and I finally got a chance to do a painting on one of the slates. Tina asked about that right away as soon as I put up on Etsy. So thank you, Tina, for that. Jason W. bought something on Bandcamp and then made a big donation as well. So thank you, Jason W., kind of helping two ways there. Yeah, thank you for everyone who took advantage of Bandcamp's uh, thoughtful uh, idea to give the proceeds of Friday's sales to the artists themselves yeah there were a lot of band camp orders too many to name everybody if you were one of those people thank you so much really really nice eric t he bought the original art from last week's episode as well as the photo of the week from last week so that's always a huge help thank you and Moritz, i don't know if he's listening but he bought a load of cds and books and patches yeah he's a, a, a longtime friend and supporter of you yeah absolutely so Thank you to everybody. As I said, these times are uncertain, so it means everything to us, the support. Another way you can support us is through Patreon, patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. I want to thank all of our patrons, too many to list by name, but you guys make this show happen. You make it possible. If you want to help support Strange Familiars and get extra shows, we released one of the patron shows last week just as a bonus for everybody since everybody's stuck in sequester hopefully you guys liked it we did that to give you some extra content but also so you could see kind of what it's like when we do the patron shows that we do do full episodes of strange familiars for our patrons so hopefully everybody liked that we won't be doing that too often most of the patron shows we're obviously going to keep for patrons to, as a reward for being a patron but we wanted to do that again just to give some extra content in uh, these times of uncertainty here and boredom (laughs) (laughs) that too if you'd like to help us and get those extra shows three dollars a month go to patreon patreon.com slash strange familiars if you can afford more than three dollars a month you can get other rewards like t-shirts and copies of my books and cds and more you can check out all the levels of support there at patreon patreon.com slash strange familiars if you don't like the idea of a monthly subscription like patreon and you still want to help You can go to strangefamiliars.com, look in the show notes under every episode. There's a paypal.me link where you can make a one-time donation. Everyone can help by sharing the show on social media, by liking and subscribing, whatever podcast service you're listening to us on, like and subscribe, and leave us those nice five-star reviews because that helps get the show in front of other potential listeners. The photo of the week is particularly special. You know, while I like a theme, this one couldn't be more on topic. Right. I realize that we're probably going to have more than one show this week because we're trying to do extra content. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like the photos of the week, but we've been calling it photo like of the week. Like the episode so. of the week. Here. Like it goes with the episode. So. Yeah. But uh, we're doing multiple photos of the week this week, but we're, we're still calling them photo of the week. So we will get the opportunity to... Have your little own personal Maud Allen. Yes. And... It's not easy for me to part with any of these Maud Allen I know, even images. right now I'm looking at it going, hmm. It's one of those things I think a lot of people are finding they're revisiting things they haven't seen in a while because they have the time to. Mm-hmm. But I think it would be good for to give other people like a little bit of a, a, a taste of yeah, how I, fun collecting those particular... It's another, a whole other separate genre to collect. You can collect theatrical 
subjects. Which there are some amazing photos of them, of, of you know, people in costumes, theater costumes and so forth. And while it, it is difficult for me to part with any of these, I, I do have a considerable collection of Maud Allen postcards that I've collected over the years. It would be a shame to do an episode of Maud Allen and not offer yeah. <laughs> a Maud Allen photo as the photo of the week. I know you like a theme. Yeah, I do. What like could it. be more on theme than Maud herself in her Salome dancing costume? Yeah, she's in a pose that is somewhere between goth girl and maybe dead show. <laughs> <laughs> Very theatrical. I wonder if that's the set on which she danced. I don't know. Oh, perhaps. Yeah, it has yeah. these like sort of... I can't see the top, so I can't identify of Ionic, Doric, or Corinthian, the three things that you actually learn. In. <laughs> right. But this is a what would be termed as a, a real photo postcard. It is a rotary photo postcard. Now, those were... It's a certain kind of photo postcard or a certain maker? I think that's the publisher. It's the publisher, okay. Who did a lot of actresses and actors and so forth. Yeah, besides um, Salomania, the the zeal for postcards at this time is crazy. I mean, there's some other actresses that, that I have hundreds of different views of them. Yes, the Dare sisters. The Dare sisters, Phyllis yes. and Zena Dare. I have probably a hundred different views of them. So um, yeah, this is uh, this is Maud Allen in her Salome outfit, um, draped in pearls. Early 1900s, I think 19, I think it's 1908 or 1910. I forget. Early 1900s. This would have been great. In the midst of Salomania, basically. Mm -hmm. This would have been one of the first uh, Maud Allen cards I think I got as well. We're going to go $25 on this plus postage. You can own an original Maud Allen photo postcard from the early 1900s. You can see it in the show notes. If you click on it, it should take you right to our Etsy store where you can purchase it and have an image of Maud herself. Thanks, everybody, for supporting us. Thanks for listening Stay tuned. I think we're going to have two shows this week for everybody. Be safe, be kind if you can, and stay healthy if you can. And we'll be back soon with more Strange Familiars. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts, music, books, art, podcasts, and more darkhollerarts.com intro and background music is by stonebreath go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com for more we're on facebook facebook.com slash strange familiars where you can join the strange familiars gathering group and we're on instagram at strange familiars
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.